Father, we bless you. We thank you for the Holy Ghost. We thank you for utterance and direction in the Spirit of God. We thank you, Father, for opening the eyes of our understanding that we would be open to the knowledge of your will for our lives and your purpose for each and every one of us members of your church. We thank you for doing it, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hallelujah. Well, you may not be aware of it, but we're entering in this week into the season of the fall feast for the Jews. The reason we call it the season is because there's disagreement among the Jews concerning when some of these things start. One group says that the Feast of Trumpets begins today at 6 o'clock. Another group says that, uh, well, uh, another group identifies the Feast of Trumpets starting tomorrow evening at 6 o'clock. We have different groups of Judaism that say we're entering into a year of Jubilee at this the Feast of Trumpets heralds the Jewish New Year. And so you've got Jews that claim that this is the year of Jubilee that's coming up. Others dispute that and say that it's not at that time yet. It's just like anything else that you get Jewish people involved with. There's always disagreement. But the fall feast, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles for the Jews has specific significance because it's associated with the appearing of their Messiah. Now we know their Messiah is Jesus. But the fall feast kick off the accepted knowledge instituted by the rabbis and the teaching of Judaism for many, many years, centuries. They're looking for their Messiah to appear. We're looking for him to appear too. Amen. Now the Bible says Jesus gave certain instruction and Paul did too about things to look for concerning the Lord's return. And those things include signs in the heavens. There are things that we are supposed to look at here on the earth and countries and their actions and interactions concerning Israel and so forth. And a lot of people talk about those and rightly so. But the Bible tells us that the things, there will also be signs and wonders in heaven that we need to keep our eyes open to. One of the things that I've talked about here over the last number of weeks is the telescope that was sent up a year or so ago. It's called the James Webb Telescope. And it's sending back pictures of the universe that have absolutely turned our knowledge of what we thought about the universe on its head. It has provided the greatest collection of scientific and, and facts that has changed in many respects our understanding of the place that we live, the universe that we live in. There are many things that have been discovered concerning black holes and what they are doing and, and what they do and how they perform and so forth. And the brilliance and the brightness of the things that are seen, being seen by this telescope and being relayed back to the earth is just fascinating. There is one thing that took me by surprise is that they've discovered a black hole that has, well, they've, they've identified that black holes have universes in them. They're big enough to have universes multiple universes 
existing inside them. And they found one black hole that's got a, a universe that they're calling the mirror universe. That that universe has is constructed in such a way that time goes backwards. Now, folks, you know what that means, don't you? Well, neither do I, but it's got to be something. <laughs> One of the things it means is how big God is. The Jewish feast, the Feast of Trumpets, heralds the appearing of the Messiah. The Day of Atonement identifies through the works of Jesus the fact that sin has been paid for for mankind. And the Feast of Tabernacles reflects the fact that God, the God of the universe, wants to dwell inside you and me. One of the things that's been identified by this telescope and its findings is that the earth and our own universe is traveling at 12 million miles per hour. There's some sort of gravitational pull that is drawing the universe to it that nobody can explain. But it shows the bigness of God. One of the things that I saw in, uh, many years ago in the creation account in Genesis is where God said, let there be light. And light was. I guess, without really thinking much about it, I guess I thought from the time that I was a child hearing the creation account, creation story in church, I guess I thought that meant that God made the sun and the moon. But that doesn't happen until several days later in the creation account. In other words, God is bigger than light. And the light of God, which is the only source of light that I can imagine it would be, would be God himself, is not the sun. This telescope has identified and found that there's, there are speeds that are faster than light. Folks, God is so big, so awesome, that it's hard for us to even fathom. But one of the things that I like about this telescope and the things that it's, that it's relaying back to the earth is that it's showing me the bigness of God. Everything about this created universe is subject to and less than the God that lives inside of you and me. Psalm chapter 8, or Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has seen thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. This word angels is the word Elohim. It means that thou hast made him a little lower than God himself and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and on the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the path of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Now I want to go back through this and pick a couple of things apart with it. I want you to notice verse 2 again. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies. Folks, it indicates that the devil was already fallen and it was a, a part of God's plan for redemption, a part of 
the principles of strength and power that he put in place with the creation of this earth, he ordained that strength or his power in us was developed through the words of our mouth. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength. We speak strength. And that strength overcomes the enemy of God. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than God himself. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said after he'd made everything else on the earth, on the sixth day of creation, he said, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. God made you as, as close and as much like himself as he was able to do. He left nothing out. He left nothing to fall short of his creation himself created in you and me for the purpose of, or, uh, purpose of having dominion over the works of his hand. Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Folks, the God of the universe. And that's one thing that one reason why I keep going back and, and uh, I've subscribed on social media to these groups regarding the, uh, uh, well, regarding NASA and space things, this James Webb t uh, telescope specifically, because every time I see it, it never gets old because there's always new pictures, pictures that show different galaxies, different universes, things that I don't even know what to call. And it shows them to illustrate the bigness of God. But he wants to live in you. He doesn't want to live out there with all these beautiful stars and beautiful galaxies and beautiful nebulas and so forth. He wants to live in you. He doesn't want to show his strength out through the creative power of his words. He wants you to experience the creative power of his words because he's inside you. When we look at the Word of God, there's so much of it that identifies the power of God and his willingness to use that power on your behalf. We see things that God did to deliver his people throughout the ages. that are specifically designed for you and I to recognize that God is powerful enough to do those things. But maybe more importantly, that he's willing to display his power on your behalf. The Bible talks about the plagues that came upon the Egyptians to dislodge the people of God, the Jewish nation to be freed from bondage. We've got a lot of people that are making noise about things in the earth and the things in the world that we live in today. But you look back at some of those plagues, see God raining fire and hail, hail mixed with fire, I think is the way it says it, down on the earth. Folks, that would when that happens again during the tribulation, that's going to cause the, the climate change folks to lose their minds. I mean, that's real climate change. Not this fake thing that they're using to try to control you and me. One of the stories of the Exodus that means so much to me it's when Moses faced the Red Sea. Pharaoh has 
changed his heart and decided to destroy the people. They're hemmed in on two sides by mountainous terrain that they can't escape over. They've got the chariots of, of Pharaoh, the greatest army on the face of the earth at that time, coming behind them. And in front of them, they have the Red Sea. It looks like absolute failure. It looks like a failure of leadership on Moses' part. And remember that Moses won battles before he left Egypt after killing the Egyptian slave master. He was a part of Pharaoh's household. He became a military genius or a military master and was known to be so throughout Egypt. But here he is as an old man. Facing a complete defeat and annihilation of his people. God stands between the children of Israel and Pharaoh's armies in a pillar of fire. Moses comforts the people or tries to, encourages them. He knows not, God's not going to leave them out there to, to uh, be destroyed. And so he says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Then he turns his face toward God and God says, what are you looking to me for? Which seems to me to be the obvious way to go. Who's going to help him if it's not God? But God's not saying he's not going to help. He's saying, Moses, you're the one that was given authority. You're the one that was given dominion. Use your dominion and part the sea. Folks, do you realize that we are given dominion over the earth and that dominion includes something like parting of sea? I don't believe it means something that can be used or, or exercised indiscriminately. If there wasn't a real purpose and need for it, there would never be the opportunity to do it. But there was a need. And God showed the fullness, not just of his power, but of the dominion that he's given mankind. Time after time it tells us about Israel in being, being in battles, fighting their enemies. It tells us in one place that as long as Moses held his hands up, Israel prevailed in the battle, but when his hands were let down, the enemy was defeating Israel. So the two guys sat him on a rock and held up his hands, one on, one on each side of him, and held his hands up, signifying, just as Psalm 8 talks about, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength. That strength was exercised by Moses lifting up his hands toward God. Man has been given dominion over all of his enemies. There are other times where the Bible talks about how that Israel was defeating their enemies, but it was starting to get dark. And so the leader of Israel called out to God and asked him to suspend darkness. And so it stayed light. The folks, the power of God superseded night and day. The principles of night and day that he said would establish would be established and, cont and continue forever here on this earth. Again, that's not an indiscriminate use of dominion, but it was a genuine need. And so darkness was suspended. There are a couple of stories that I want to read to you that talk about the display of God's power. 
One is in 2 Kings chapter 3. It tells us the story of the evil king of Israel. The tribes were divided. Kingdom of Israel was divided. I think it was Jehoram that was king of Israel and Jehoshaphat that was king of Judah. The king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And so the king of Israel declared war against him. So he came to Jehoshaphat and he asked if he would join him in this battle against the Moabites. And Jehoshaphat said that he would. He probably should have prayed about it first, but he didn't. But he said that he would. And then the king of Israel joined himself to the king of Edom in this battle as well. So you've got the king of Israel, Jehoram, the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, and the king of Edom. I don't remember his name if it tells us. And so it says they set a compass for seven days. It means they marched their armies out seven days toward Edom, or toward Moab, sorry. And at the end of those seven days, they've been without water. They certainly carried water with them when they left. But they've come to the place where they are at the end of their supply. And the evil king of Israel blames God for it. Now he's worshiping another God, not the one true God, the God of Israel. But he doesn't blame the God that he's worshiping. He blames God of Jehoshaphat. And so Jehoshaphat speaks up and he says, well, isn't there a prophet out here somewhere that can tell us the will of the Lord? So somebody speaks up and says, well, yeah, there's a prophet Elisha that's out here. So they make plans to go to him. And Elisha very specifically tells Jehoshaphat that if it wasn't for him specifically, if it wasn't for him, he wouldn't have even met with the king of Israel and the king of Edom. And, of course, this speaks to the wickedness of the idol worship that the king of Israel is involved in. But Elisha calls for a minstrel. And as he does, the hand of the Lord comes upon him. In 2 Kings chapter 16, I'm sorry, 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 16, here's the instruction that Elisha gives. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches, for thus saith the Lord, you shall not see wind, neither shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water that you may drink, both ye and your cattle and your beasts. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Boabites into your hand. Here's the prophet saying, here's God doing virtually nothing relative to his power and what he could do, relative to his ability. And this is but a light thing. Biggest miracle any of them has ever seen. Probably the biggest miracle that any of them ever will see. But it's a light thing. Folks, I'm convinced that God wants us to know that he's bigger than what we can ask for. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, I think it is. It says, Then God, who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. I don't know about you, but I think pretty big. I don't always ask for the things I think. I guess in relation, it's rare that I do. But God's bigger than what we can even think about. This stuff with the universe and the pictures from this telescope, it's expanded my thinking. And as such, it's expanded my expectancy from the God that's big enough to create all those things. If we go a little bit further in 2 Kings chapter 6, it tells us
verse 25 or verse 24. We'll start with that. I'm going to read some of this to let you get the, the picture, feel the picture of what's going on. It came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver. That's a lot. And the fourth part of a cab of doves dung for five pieces of silver. Things that we would consider to be worthless. But as a food source, I guess you can consider this to be inflation. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord does not help thee, when shall I help thee? Out of the barn for or out of the wine press? He said, I can't make food. What do you expect me to do? Deliver you something that I, I don't have? And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, the woman, This woman said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. Now, folks, that's famine. And that crosses every moral boundary that we could attach to humankind. But that was the circumstance that they were living in. So we boiled my son, she said, and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him. And she has hidden her son. And it came to pass when the king heard the words of the woman that he rent his clothes and he passed by upon the wall. And the people looked and behold he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Then he said, God do so, God do so and more also to me if the head of Elisha the son of Shaphath shall stand on him this day. Blame the prophet. That'll always fix the problem. But Elisha sat in his house. And the elders sat with him. And the king sent a man from before him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Elisha said to the elders, See, how, see ye how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto him. And he said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? That's the king's attitude that the messenger conveys. Chapter 7, verse 1, Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel. That's less than a penny. And two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Then a lord on whose hand the king leaned, here's an advisor, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make the windows in heaven, might this thing be? He's saying this is way too big for God to do. He's saying it's not going to work the way the, the prophet is established. And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. That's Elijah's response. You'll see it, but you won't experience it. And there were four leprous men at the entering end of the gate, and they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? Now, folks, I want to take a little rabbit trail here for just a moment. Sometimes, not all the time, and I'm not saying it's the will of God for it to happen to you or me or anybody else, but sometimes... It takes dire consequences and situation for people to be willing to step out of what they're comfortable with. And in many cases, it's that stepping out of your comfort zone because and probably only because of the dire circumstances or consequences that we're experiencing that draw the attention of God to help. Here's four lepers and they come to the conclusion that unless they do something to change their situation, they're going to die. If we keep doing what we've been doing, we're going to sit here and die. 
They go on in verse 4, if we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city and we shall die there. So it won't do any good to get up from the gate and go inside the city. It's just as bad there as it is here. Now therefore come and let us fall into the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we'll live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. We're going to die anyway. Not much of a risk putting ourselves in place to die at their hand. And they rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord has made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots. God defeated Israel's army with a sound. Not a cause or a source of the sound, but with a sound. The Lord has made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. Can I ask you a question? When did that sound occur? My guess is the sound occurred when Elijah prophesied that this time tomorrow these great measures of food will be purchased for less than a penny. And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink, and carried thence silver and gold and raiment, and went and hid it, and came again and entered into another tent, and carried thence also, and went and hid that. Then they said one to another, We're not doing the right thing. We do not do well. This day is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. So they came and called unto the porter of the city and they told him saying we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold there was no man there neither the voice of man but horses tied and asses tied and the tents as they were. And he called the porters and they told it to the king's house within and the king arose in the night and said to his servants I will now show you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we be hungry Therefore are they gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants answered and said, Let some take, I pray thee, five of the horses that remain, which are left in the city, and let us send them and see. And they took therefore two chariot horses, and the king sent after the host of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. And they went after them under Jordan, and lo, all the way was full of garments and vessels, which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. And the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians, so that a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, like Elisha said, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. This is the guy that said that God couldn't do it. And the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died, as the man of God had said, who spake when the king came down to him. He was trampled in the gate after seeing that God did what the prophet Elisha said that he would do. How big is God to you? Is he big enough just to meet your needs? Is he big enough just to help you in your everyday life? Is he big enough to change anything for you? Or is that not the kind of relationship you have with him? How big is God to you? We should just ask the question, how big is God? 
But that really doesn't just matter by itself. Because God is only as big to you as you make him. You're the one that decides whether God is big or not. You're the one that decides whether God is big to you or not. You're the one that's been given dominion in the earth. I think one of the things, well, one of the truths of the scripture said that when we get to heaven, God will wipe away every tear. It doesn't say that nobody will cry. It says nobody will keep crying. What are people going to cry about when they get to heaven? Isn't heaven a place of rejoicing? Isn't heaven a place where we say, praise God, we made it? And look around, this is better than we ever thought that it would be. But the Bible says God will wipe away every tear. What is there in heaven that will cause us to cry? Folks, I don't think there's but two things, two things that I've ever thought about or come to understanding. For me, there's only two things that I can imagine anybody crying about. The first thing is people that didn't make it. People whose eternity is reserved for them in hell, the fires of hell and the lake of fire. And I believe that that's going to weigh heavily on us for a short period of time at least. I believe we'll question whether or not we did everything we could do to reach others. I believe it'll be something that we will most probably see that even though someone may be a great soul winner, there's probably not one person on the planet that will make heaven that will not be reminded of at least some situation where they could have done something else. The second thing that I think will cause people to cry is when we see the dominion, the reality of the dominion that was given to mankind and see how far short we failed or felt in operating in that dominion to the benefit of others, not just ourselves. I don't believe anybody's going to cry because they didn't believe for that Mercedes. But I believe there are a lot of things that will cause us to be sorrowful when we see clearly what we could have done that would have benefited not only ourselves, but more importantly, would have benefited others. But God will wipe away every tear. Now we think of that usually, I guess, in rational terms where God just wipes away a tear for a time. But if he wipes away every tear, it has to be a, a, a memory wipe. There's no way that you and I could enjoy heaven in the fullness of God's intent if we're remembering loved ones that didn't make it. Which in my thinking is a greater tragedy if we don't take the opportunities that we're given to reach others. Can you imagine going through eternity, living in eternity? Reminded day after day after day of the people you could have reached but didn't? That wouldn't be heaven. That would be its own, own course of hell. Its own version of hell for us. So there has to be a, a loss of memory of some type. There has to be some kind of Relief of faculties of recall here on the earth. Things that we won't remember. 
in order to fully participate and experience heaven. And folks, you realize I don't have all the answers on this stuff. And I can't tell you that God has spoken to me to say this is the way things work. But how could we enjoy heaven otherwise? To me, that means we have one and only one chance to reach people. And the closer we get to Jesus coming, the greater that responsibility to reach others is. How big is God to you? I went to a funeral yesterday for somebody that uh, used to come to our church. They tell me that they spent six years here in our church. I'm not good with time and how long things were or how long ago things were or stuff like that, so... I'll take them at their word. But he was stricken with cancer and believed God for his healing and, and was pronounced healed by the medical doctors. I think it was a combination of medical treatment and believing God but he set his target as the healing of his body and achieved that. He hit the target. He achieved that very thing. And he spent several months cancer-free. But then something came at some point in time, and I don't have all the information. Didn't really want to ask anybody about the story. But sometime after that, the cancer came back. And it came back with a vengeance. And it took his life really pretty quickly. So I went to the funeral, knowing that much about the story at least. And most of the funeral didn't, I wasn't able to stay for the whole thing. And it was going to be a long one, buddy. They had an order of service that had 12 people to scheduled to speak. We heard two of them. And everybody was doing their best to keep a stiff upper lip, so to speak, and celebrate the life of the individual rather than mourn their death. But you could see from the family that they had questions and nobody was answering their questions. And it was, a, it was a very instructive thing for me. And sitting there, all of a sudden, out of the blue, as so we would say, I knew what happened. The Lord didn't tell me to tell the family. But it came to me like this. I heard the voice of the Lord on the inside of me and he said this. He said, so many people expect or assume, assume was the word he used, not expect. So many people assume that his target was healing. And out of nothing more than just the knowledge of God, the revelation of God, I knew that when the cancer came back, second diagnosis of cancer, I saw him discouraged. And I saw him give up. Now, when I say give up, I don't mean cast his faith away. I mean he chose not to believe the physical healing. Now, you can't say his faith didn't work. 
because medical science confirmed that he was healed of his cancer the first time. But the second time, he set his target on heaven. And it's so unusual for us to experience when somebody sets their target on heaven because we're so conscious of the world we live in and the circumstances and consequences of the things around us. We just assume that everybody else is believing like us. Believing for healing if we need it. Believing for provision because we do need it. Believing for God to intervene in our lives and make things comfortable for us down here. But that's not what setting your target on heaven is. And certainly there are varieties or measures of the target that we set on heaven. For example, I've set my target on heaven, but that doesn't mean I want to go today. It means that I've set my course of life on spiritual and eternal things identified by the word of God itself now folks if Jesus is coming back soon and like I said some groups say that the feast of trumpets starts this evening If Jesus comes back in a week, say, for example, what difference would it have made that that gentleman went home a week earlier than his wife and his kids? If Jesus comes back in a month, what difference will it make if that individual went a, a week or a month earlier than his family? You see my point? Things that we think and things that we consider are so earthly that they require a change in our thought patterns. We need to get ourselves where we're ready to go. I think most of the church would be surprised by the rapture. I don't think we're supposed to be surprised by the rapture. I used to think because the one scripture that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21, man shall not know the day or the hour of his coming. I've lived 65 plus years. I saved when I was six, so that makes it 59 I've lived 59 years thinking that nobody was ever supposed to know when the rapture is going to be. And that's not a thing in the world close to what Jesus said. Jesus had a day that was circled in red for his sacrifice. A day that was circled in red and established on the calendar as the day of his birth. A day that was circled in red and set on the calendar of heaven for his resurrection. And a day that was circled in red and set in, um, for eternity in heaven for his return unto the Father. The idea that he does not have a day circled in red on the calendar of heaven for his re reappearing, for the rapture of the church, is ridiculous. Jesus said he didn't know what day that was, but he didn't say he couldn't know the day. We need to have an eternal focus. We need to have a heavenly target for the way we live our lives, for the way we spend our days Folks, can you guys see my hand shaking? That's
That's a vanity symptom. What I mean by that is, I've got a tremor, have had for 11 years. I have a tremor in my right hand and my right foot. It's easier to cover up the foot than it is the hand because my foot can't shake while I'm standing still. But especially early on, riding in the car with me was like a Disneyland ride. I don't mind joking about it because it's temporary. But it's a vanity thing. If it wasn't for the tremor in my hand, there would be a lot of things about this Parkinson's diagnosis that I've been given that you could hide. So you can see my hand shake. But that's the least of the things I've had to deal with. Now here's something I need you to think about as I ask you these questions. Can you tell I've got my mind back? One of the things I lost midway through this 11-year ordeal is the ability to recall and the ability to think. There were things that I would normally, I've always been quick-witted or quick-thinking or quick mentally, I'm not sure how to say it. I'm not trying to brag on myself. That's not what I'm saying. But I just don't know how to convey it. But my mind has always been alert and quick, sharp. But there would be things that would happen that I wouldn't come to the understanding of how I should respond to it for a day later. Can you tell I've regained my strength? There would be times where my sermons would be cut as short as I could get through. And of course, I'd have a list of scriptures to remind myself of where to go and what to say. It's the only time I've ever had any notes or as close as as notes as I've ever come to having. And for a long time, it was just an ordeal. I mean, standing in this pulpit was a curse, was a burden because of the lack of strength that I had. Can you tell I've got my voice back? Beth was listening the other day to a sermon that I preached several years ago. And she had it, she was listening to it on her phone. And I was in a different part of the house and didn't hear it. And I came into the room and I heard myself, heard the way that I was preaching or teaching a couple of years ago. And I was so embarrassed I had to leave the house. I know there have been a lot of things that have happened in the last couple of years that have separated people from church, separated people from our church. And some people have left the wrong way complaining and so forth on their way out. And I regret that. That's, that's not a good thing for anybody. But I want to tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you stayed with us. I'm in awe of the fact that you did stay when I hear some of the things exhibited in my own preaching in times past. I'm too embarrassed to go and really ferret it out And words cannot convey what I'm really trying to get across. But I thank you for staying with us. I had no other option but just to keep going. If I had quit, there's no telling what would be my condition now. But I've got my voice back. I'm regaining my strength and my mind is being restored. I ask God for better than I had it before this happened. 
And I believe that's how it's going to be. Something else you need to know. And that is, the Bible talks about in Acts chapter 3, the man that was healed at the beautiful gate. They were taken captive. Peter and John were taken captive by the Sanhedrin. They preached Jesus to the rulers and elders. Same ones that crucified Jesus just a short time before, several months before. They went to their own company. They were threatened not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And they said, well, you'll have to decide whether we should obey God or obey you. Because he's told us to preach in the name of Jesus. They went back to their own company in Acts chapter 4. They lifted up their voice after reporting what the chief priests and the elders had said. They lifted up their voice and prayed. And now behold their threatenings. And grant unto thy servants that we may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child Jesus. As a result of this notable miracle that's identified, and that's the way the scripture says it, notable miracle, that started a time of revival or a time of power for the church that continued for some time. Really the greatest period of time in any one place that we have record of. It's what brought about the fact that People brought sick people, infirm people, and laid them on cots along the street so that the passing of Peter's shadow healed them all. That came about as the notable miracle of the man that was healed at the beautiful gate of the temple. So, I asked the Lord, and it's been some time ago now, but I asked the Lord that the notable miracle of my healing would spark a wave of healing that runs through this church. I fully expect it to heal every person in this church that needs healing. And you know as well as I do that everybody's changed, most everybody has changed their church attendance principle, schedule, Whatever word would be best to use there. People don't go to church like they used to. Just over the last couple of years. And so I realize. That on any given day. There could be a lot of people. Not here that are still. Consider themselves to be part of our church. So when I ask God. To let his miracle working power of my healing spark a wave of healing I included that to mean anybody and everybody that considers themselves to be this church whether they're present at the point in time or not I believe that I'm instructed by the Lord to tell you that for two reasons one is it puts me on the line and the other is because it's soon coming The strides I've taken in the restoration of my mind, my mental acuity, my strength, and my voice are telling me the time is short. Because of my own situation, I've had a great deal of compassion for our president. Anybody that can't see that he's in mental decline has got their eyes shut or has a different reason for not recognizing it. But the more and more my mind has been restored, I don't have compassion for him anymore. He's just a dumb, evil man. 
And he set, in, set on course many things that he'll have to answer for when he stands before God. I'm not concerned about politics like I used to be because I have a heavenly target. Doesn't mean I'm unaware. Doesn't mean I'm unconcerned. It means I'm not going to be subject to things that happen politically in this country. I'm not looking for a Messiah, political Messiah. I'm not looking for President Trump to be reinstated and to change things back to the way they were. I'm looking for Jesus to come and spark a revival that ushers in multitudes into the kingdom of God so that we have nothing, hopefully, to cry about when we get there. And I felt like you needed to be informed So you are thus informed. I believe we're entering into the day. I should say this as well. I didn't realize this till I was almost to church this morning. But I forgot to take my medication today. So this is as bad as it gets. I've been on this medication for the last eight years, I think. Maybe not quite that long, maybe six. Anyway, it's been a long time, and I have never failed through forgetting or any other reason to take that medication. It's not the medication, according to the doctors, it's not a medication that claims to do anything except reduce the shaking and the tremors. It has no impact on the source of the, of the Parkinson's because nobody knows what the source is. It has no residual effect. There's no buildup of the, of the medicine in your body. It's used up day by day by day. But this morning I forgot to take it. Didn't intend to take it, didn't, didn't mean to not take it. But as things have turned out, it seems kind of fitting that I didn't have it. This is as bad as it gets. Even the shaking and the tremors has decreased greatly from the worst time that it was. Folks, God's word, God's word is true. And he is faithful to be trusted. I believe there are big things in our future. If I can believe for it, so can you. If I can have it, so can you. Let's all stand together. I'm going to lead you in a confession or two. Say this after me. Let your heart agree with this. I believe we serve a big God. I believe he's big enough to heal my body. I believe he's big enough to deliver me from my situations. I believe I receive healing from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, inside and out. I believe I receive deliverance from everything that would hold me bound. I speak strength. I speak healing. I speak deliverance in the name of Jesus. I believe that a notable miracle will spark a wave of healing that runs through this church and heals every person that is a part of this church, whether they are present or not. Now lift your other hand toward heaven and, and thank you. We bless you, Father. We bless your holy name. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Thank you for your faithfulness to watch over your word to perform it. Father, we laugh at symptoms because of the work of Jesus has made us free. 
We laugh at bondage because Jesus delivered us. Thank you, Father, for leading us by your Spirit to those who need you, to those that need salvation, that we might enter them into the kingdom of God. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Before we go, there's one, thing, one last thing we need to do, and that is this. If you'd bow your head and close your eyes, please. If there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it wouldn't be fitting for us to leave without giving you that opportunity to find him and to meet him. So if you're here this morning and cannot say with certainty that you know that if your life ended today or if Jesus came back for the church today, you can't say with certainty that you know that you would be with that company to be with him in heaven, then I want to give you the opportunity to be in that company. If you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, would you please raise your hand? Very quickly, please. Looks like we're all believers. That's what I expected, but I wanted to make sure. So say it with me. Come back, Jesus. We're ready for you. Amen. God bless you, folks. Thanks for being with us.